And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a terrific week. Uh, great show for you today. I was joined by my friend Jim Garrity from National Review, uh, and we covered a ton. We talked about the primary results in Florida last night and what that means going forward. We talked about some progress uh, being made from Republican Senate hopefuls in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Uh, we talked about Joe Biden announcing that he will cancel student loans and uh, what all that means uh, moving forward, and, and a bunch of other stuff. I think you guys really enjoyed it. Before I get to Jim Garrity, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, wherever get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe. Uh, if you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great Jim Garrity. All right, guys, we're here at the great Jim Garrity. Jim, how you been, man? I've been good. Um, you know, besides the the usual good news and, and life being well in all the important ways, um, you know, it uh, we, the news cycle is never boring. And so I always have something to write about and I always have something to uh, – I can either vent a spleen or, you know, my better days, try to offer some some somewhat rational analysis of what's going on in the world. I mean, for some reason, people like reading bad news. So, uh, you know, business is booming, as Antonio Brown would say, uh, unfortunately, I guess. Um, but we have a ton to discuss, as always. But uh, but before we get started, the, the third installment of the Dangerous Click series, Gathering Five Storms, is out now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Uh, Jim, without giving too many spoilers, obviously, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Brady, first of all, thank you for bringing that up so that I don't have to. I don't like <laughs> nagging people to buy my books. Uh, but this is probably the most fun thing that I do. Uh, a couple of years back, I had this idea for a series about a um, kind of your Mission Impossible style, small team uh, operating some CIA, some NSA, some FBI. And the idea is they were created to, you know, get rid of a terrorist before the terrorist turned into get rid of small time terrorists before they turned into large scale ones. Uh, the first one was called Between Two Scorpions and kind of imagined what if terrorists actually understood how America works? What if they understood where we were vulnerable, vulnerable instead of this kind of, you know, radical Islamist ideology that believed that if you blow up the World Trade Center, the U.S. economy will collapse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, book two was about was entitled Hunting for Horsemen. It was about the idea of using uh, genetic engineering to create what's called an ethnic bioweapon, a virus that could target particular genes. Uh, and then this one is called Gathering Five Storms. And I've had a couple of people ask, OK, well, you, you've got these characters, you've got this team. Um, by the way, these are not your traditional Tom Clancy techno thrillers. None of my characters are, you know. Rod Stronger, who's the toughest ex-Navy SEAL, <laughs> ex-CIA, ex-secret, you know, my characters are kind of goofy, kind of quirky. Um, people have compared the dialogue to a Dennis Miller monologue, lots of pop culture references, lots of snarky sarcasm and things like that. And um, in this one, the team finds out that someone is trying to kill them, um, right as uh, the two protagonists, Katrina and Alec, 
uh, have found out they're about to become parents and this is shaking up their life. They've, you know, did not expect to be. They're very happy. They're overjoyed. But also there's now this giant challenge of how do you go about doing your work of counterterrorism when there's someone who's trying to kill you and your as yet unborn, well, to give you one more minor spoiler, children. She's having twins. Um, and so kind of this, you know, this, this all relates back to their first mission in 2003, just as the Iraq war was about to begin. And so in addition to everything else, there's kind of this look at what America, life in America was in 2003. And we were very much in the, still in the psychological aftermath of 9-11 and the world of like around 2021 or so, uh, getting out of COVID and kind of what we were scared of then, what made us what we were worried about then. And oh, by the way, the steady collapse of Afghanistan going on in the background of the modern chapters. So um, hopefully, you know, despite all those grim topics, it is uh, hopefully fun, thrills, chills, and I uh, hope everyone gives, a, gives it a look. It's available on Amazon. And that's about it. Uh, although most bookstores will special order it if you go and ask for it. Absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to get my hands on it, man. I'll tweet out the link to Amazon uh, right under this episode. As soon as it's posted, I encourage everybody to go buy it. Uh, make make that thing shoot up the charts right away. Help Jim out, and I'm sure it's going to be great. Can't wait to read it. Um, so let's jump right into to uh, the uh, primary elections in Florida yesterday. There's not a lot of news. I think everybody who was supposed to won, win won, you know. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Chris won his primary and gets to get, you know, the honor of being thumped by Ron DeSantis. I think he'll probably lose by 10 points at least. Uh, he also has the dubious honor of losing statewide as a Republican, independent, and Democrat while campaigning as a conservative, moderate, and leftist. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I mean, that he should have a, a medal uh, shipped to him right away um, for that. But uh, you wrote in the morning jolt yesterday about uh, how, what's her, what's her name? Uh, Nikki Freed. Um, crazy cat mm-hmm. lady <laughs> was attempting to run on like the 2018 anti-Trump resistance platform. And that didn't work for her at all. I think she only got what, 34% of the vote or something like that. Um, and, and I hate it when we discussed before we started recording, I hate it when pundits are like, because this happened, that means this is going to happen in November. Cause it's like rarely true. And usually it doesn't even make sense. You know, people just want to want to, you know, say stuff like that for the clicks. But honestly, I do think that's encouraging looking at the midterms because a lot of Democrats nationwide are running just against Trump for some reason. They're not running against their Republican opponent. Mm-hmm. And it's just not working. It didn't work for Nikki Freed. And I think it's going to be extremely difficult uh, for these Democrats to tie everything to Trump when he's not on the ballot. Yeah. And one of the ironies is if you look back about two or three years ago, Nikki Fareed was the only Democrat who had won a statewide election in 2018. <clears throat> Ron DeSantis had won the governor's race. But if you recall, he didn't win by a particularly big margin. He was up against Andrew Gillum, who has become a much more infamous figure since that election year. Um, but so there was a time when Nikki Fareed was considered the next great Democratic hope and that she was young, she was progressive, she'd been active in the uh, legal marijuana industry, and she was going to be, you know, this next one. And oh, by the way, this occurs in, against the backdrop of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. <clears throat> and people would have figured, oh, okay, young progressive woman, this is exactly the sort of candidate who should be uh, galvanized on this. And as, as you alluded to, she ran what struck me as a very similar campaign to what we saw from a lot of Democrats in the 2018 cycle and the 2020 cycle. Now, hashtag resistance, um, angry, some might say shrill, in your face. And, you know, she was calling, she literally compared Ron DeSantis to Hitler. I believe she might be the only 
only Jewish candidate who's ever been rebuked by the Anti-Defamation League right. for making an inappropriate comparison, you know. Um, and I think what's really interesting here, I mean, you're people like, okay, so Democrats running like this, what, what's, what's surprising, what's new about this? Well, what's surprising is that Florida Democrats didn't seem all that galvanized or interested in this. Now, I don't think this is because Florida Democrats love Ron DeSantis or they feel like his good name is being besmirched. I think it's either A, they just don't, they, they're tired of it. They've heard this argument for a long time. They don't find it all that compelling. Or perhaps B, maybe even more likely, they don't think the Florida general electorate is going to find it compelling. And Charlie Crist, as you as you mentioned there, is a very familiar name uh, to Florida voters. He's not a whirling dervish of raw political charisma, but he was running a fairly sunnier uh, more optimistic, some would say more unifying approach to the state. And in the end, it was like a nearly two to one margin. Florida Democrats said, eh, you know what, let's go with Chris again. I, I do think it really kind of, if if you look at progress, young progressive Democrats and say, boy, they get a lot of media hype and then, you know, don't do nearly as well on election day. Nikki Freed is now going to be exhibit A because we've been hearing about her as, I think she was treated as the most likely uh, rival to Charlie, uh, to uh to DeSantis, you know, for the last couple of months. And in the end, it's Christ again. And I don't know if Nikki Freed has that much of a future in Florida politics. She also just looks like, I mean, she's, she just seems crazy. You know, she gives off that, like, that vibe of, like, the girlfriend who would steal your kidney and sell it on the black market. Just like that. She's got the crazy eyes. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. She doesn't seem very likable. But yeah, Brady, I, guess... I don't remember that coming up in the focus group, but yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Yes. But, uh, no, like, yeah, like, look, um, there are a lot of candidates who try to subtly allude to the idea that my opponent is like Adolf Hitler, right? But Nikki Fried went out and did it, right? And, and she said he's authoritarian, and she said he's sucking up to insurrectionists, and they said he's uh, appealing to white supremacists. I mean, everything, every, everything but the kitchen sink got thrown up against DeSantis. And I, you know, I think again, it's, it's to me, it's not, you know, obviously Republicans wouldn't like that. And, you know, generally independents don't relish the nastiest politics. I think what's really kind of surprising and useful here is that even Florida Democrats are just like, eh, this is, this is just not working, not, not working for us, not going anywhere, not what we want to throw up uh, in front of the entire electorate in November. Yeah. I mean, the, the, they're, they're trying to, you saw the, the Lincoln Project guys this morning on Twitter. I mean, they're all just trying to call Ron DeSantis a fascist. And an authoritarian. I mean, it's, it's just adorable, man. I mean, the man, like, look, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm essentially an anarchist. This at this point, like, you're not going to see me worshiping politicians or, or giving politicians too much credit. But, I mean, Ron DeSantis has spent the last couple years just desperately trying to give Floridians their freedoms back. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he's like uh -huh. one of the only governors that didn't lock down the state. I mean, he's like, he's, you know, he's giving. Uh, you know, Florida parents more more choice. I mean, it's just it's not the author the authoritarian shtick is just not gonna work. And uh, I I I think I don't know what you you think about Ron DeSantis, Jim, but like he I, I think he's the future of the party. At least I hope so. If if the Republican Party is gonna thrive in the next ten years, I think a man like DeSantis should be at the helm. I'm, you know, obviously I've I've talked I've lost a lot of <laughs> mm -hmm. a, a lot of numbers on this podcast uh, talking for the last year about how I hope. Trump doesn't run, and I hope he goes away and shuts his mouth and <laughs> lets Ron DeSantis lead the party. And I don't know if I ever told you this, Jim, but I've repeated this on the podcast several times. I think it was probably like six, eight months ago. I had you on the show, and then I had uh, my buddy mm -hmm. Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown on the show two days later. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, you're a conservative. Clint is an anarcho-capitalist. You know, he's a way, you know, very radical, even more, probably more radical than I am. Um, and you were both singing Ron DeSantis's praises. And I don't know what he did that week <laughs> to warrant it, but I was thinking, I was sitting back, I'm like, huh, how about that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if yeah, you get, yeah. you know, in, in anarcho-capitalist with a, with a very radical show, a very radical ideology, and then the you know senior political correspondent for for National Review, if they're both on the same page regarding Ron DeSantis, I don't know how you could build a candidate that can, that can get that level yeah, of that, broad two, support. Two, two circles in that Venn diagram, yeah, two Man. circles in that Venn diagram that don't overlap a great deal. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. Um, I think there were a lot of people who. You know, if you want to say, granted, we were you know dealing with a virus that was new. We were in uncharted territory. You know, we could tell this was going to be different from SARS. This was going to be different from MERS. This was different from uh, Zika and H1N1. You know, Brady, it's almost like this was engineered in a lab to target human beings through gain of function research or something. But anyway, um, th- you know that that people you know recognize we were dealing with uncharted territory. But the slightest moment towards reopening society, you know, there was that in- infamous Atlantic headline of, you know, George's experiment in human sacrifice. <laughs> it was very clear that there were people who believed we should stay locked in our homes or we should basically stay not going out to anywhere other than maybe the grocery store once a week in the pharmacy. And that's it. And we should not interact with each pe- each other. And we shouldn't, you know, our, our elderly relatives in nursing homes should just be effectively abandoned and kids should not be going back to school. And there was just clearly some people in this in this country who wanted not only the, for us to remain locked up, but for like the force of law to be used, you know, arresting the paddle boater out in California and uh, dragging that guy off the bus in Philadelphia because he wasn't wearing a mask. And it's stuff that was kind of images you're used to seeing out of some, you know, sci-fi movie depicting a you know, fascist dystopia of the, you know, of the future. We were starting to see that here in America. And Ron DeSantis, who's got a whole bunch of elderly citizens in his state and who had good reason to be cautioned, was like, you know what? We need to reopen on some way. I'm not going to put any more restrictions on my population than I have to. I trust people to use good judgment, to understand the risks and to make the decisions that are best for themselves. And he became, I think, the face of like it became Fauci announced his retirement this week. And I I was talking about how Fauci became the face of the lockdowns, even if he wants to say he didn't make anyone lock down anything. Technically, he's correct. It was Gretchen Whitmer. It was Andrew Cuomo. It was Phil Murphy. It was people like that who were making those laws, making those those laws and restrictions and rules. But Fauci was the ideological justification for it. Right. Well, well side, and, side note, yeah. when Gretchen Whitmer was giving sure. those daily press conferences, she had a prayer candle to Anthony Fauci behind her on her desk. Yes. And I don't know how religious the audience of this podcast is. I'm a very live and let live guy. But if you want to find like what is the one thing that I find sacrilegious enough to be spitting hot fire over yeah. enough to light a prayer candle. That's it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you should be, t- you know, modern political figures do not belong on your prayer candles. Um, and I think, by the way, all of that, I think was like really bad for Fauci's judgment. Um, I don't, I, there's an interesting question, and maybe we can ask Harrison Ford this. When you <laughs> have action figures made of you, do you lose touch with reality or do you still recognize that? Because if you go on Etsy, you go, you go on Amazon, there is a ton of Anthony Fauci merchandise that all kind of treat him as this, you know, uh, Moses coming down from the mountain with two stone tablets and a mask on. 
and and this idea that he's going to guide us to to all this stuff. Now, look, I you know have great respect. Anthony Fauci has done a lot to help people going back to the AIDS crisis. You know, I have really? no doubt that he is. Yeah, I don't know, but he okay. I, we, maybe we'll disagree here, but I'm just going to observe somewhere along the line, he kind of ascended to demigod status in the eyes of the media. And that was bad. That was bad for him. It was bad for the country. It was bad for the media. And I think it was bad for our um, response to the pandemic. And a lot of it, you know, like he, you know, he offered a statement that was basically, I am the science, which is, you know, uh, generally a warning sign you're dealing with someone who no longer believes in their own fallibility. So. Uh, but anyway, so and I think DeSantis became one of the faces of the pushback against that to say, no, we, we are deeply concerned about public health, but we have other concerns we have to worry about. People need to make a living. People need to eat. Uh, people need to you know go on with their lives. And it's, you know, kids need to get educated. We're still dealing with the dealing with the fallout from that. And I think that really elevated DeSantis in a way that, you know, very few other governors uh, have had an opportunity to do in, in many, many years. It's crazy that he won by what half a point. Yeah, over Andrew Gillum. And, uh, I mean, it's yeah. like that. Looking back at that governor's race in 2018, I you, you never think a, a governor's race in in Florida would affect the future of the country the way that race did. I mean, my goodness, we mm. could have had a, a a a a you know a meth head who who indulges in gay prostitutes as the <laughs> as the governor of Florida during I, COVID. You know, it's like it's it's remarkable. Yeah. Brady, I was just about to say, you look at some of those proposals Gillum was uh, putting out there on the campaign. What is he on drugs or something? Yeah, oh, turns out. Lost. So there's there's more good news. Uh, there's some good news in Ohio. Um, a couple consecutive polls now in the last two weeks are showing J.D. Vance up four to five points over Tim Ryan. Um, it was looking like the GOP might really be in trouble up here. Um, it was looking like I may end up with two Democrat senators in a, in a state that went for Trump for, what, like 11, 11 and a half points, something like that. But it looks yeah. like those fears were a little overblown. Uh, the main problem, oh, there's a lot of pro- there's there's a lot of problems with the Vance campaign. Uh, he's running a terrible campaign. But the main problem was that he just couldn't raise money. Like He was only raising like 800 grand a mm. month. That's obviously not going to cut it. Um, he had only spent, uh, as of a, like two weeks ago, like $3 million total, which is crazy. But to his credit, Mitch McConnell and his, his PAC... Uh, stepped in. I think he's shipping something like $28 million <laughs> to the J.D. Vance campaign. So uh, it looks like they'll be able to play catch up with in terms of the TV ads and everything like that. And even some of these other states that were looking even worse, Pennsylvania and Georgia, it looks like those 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 races were looking like a lost cause for a second there. But they're at least narrowing. Oz and Walker, they're both mm-hmm. within five points. It's still an uphill battle, but they're within striking distance. You know, obviously, we can, I'm keeping my eyes on, on states like New Hampshire and Arizona, Nevada as well. Um, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see how those candidates do. But, it, you know, it was looking bad. Um, it was looking like, you know, the GOP was going to just grab defeat from the jaws of victory once again and blow up a huge opportunity. But we are in striking distance, at least, from for uh, flipping the Senate. Yeah. And I think Ohio is a particularly intriguing set of circumstances because— uh, a couple of weeks ago, I looked at the polling, and there had not been a lot of independent polls since the end of the primary uh, till about, let's see what time is it, August, let's say, you know, mid to late July. And I looked at this, and almost all of them had Tim Ryan ahead, sometimes by as low as three percentage points, sometimes by as much as 11. Yes, some of these were internal polls or conducted by Democratic interest groups. One of the few Republican ones was conducted by John, Pol- John Bolton's PAC, 
And I think it's safe to say John Bolton and J.D. Vance are not on each other's Christmas card lists. Right. Um, but I looked at them all. I'm like, well, you know, this, as you said, this is a state that, you know, Trump won pretty handily. Uh, Rob Portman, you know, back when he was running, used to blow Democrats out of the or, out of the water. DeWine 20, won 21 pretty handily. points. Portman won by yeah. 21 points in 2016. Yeah. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, I don't want to panic about J.D. Vance, but is it time to start worrying about it? And I got pushback from a lot of fans of J.D. Vance. Uh, and my colleague, Michael Brendan Doherty, basically said, oh, you know, pish posh, this is going to be just fine. Uh, and in fact, none of these polls are really worth putting any stock into. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that my writing about this triggered this dramatic change. <laughs> but, you know, what happened was that from the primary, from the end of the primary to about mid to late July, J.D. Vance was not on the air in any way. And Tim, my readers in Ohio were saying, man, I'm seeing Tim Ryan ads everywhere. It's, it's almost, oh, yeah. you know, uh, Mike can get it done from the Mike Bloomberg campaign days yeah. of, you know, um, but when one Democratic candidate has the ads to himself for like nearly a three month span, it shouldn't be surprising the Democrat poll numbers are going up and the Republican poll numbers are going down. Now, new independent polling is, you know, J.D. Vance is now up on the air. New independent polling has given Vance a small lead. Now, it's worth noting Mike DeWine in these same polls is considerably ahead. He's, he's going to yeah. win, you know, yeah. without breaking a sweat. 15, I, I, 18 know, range. J.D. Vance yeah. had, yeah. Vance had a tough primary, and as you mentioned, that finance the, the, the finance issue did not help him. I do wonder if he has the problem of calling up the typical Republican uh, wealthy donor and saying, Mr. Donor, uh, I'm J.D. Vance, and I'm running for Senate. And as you know, I think you're the root of all evil. Could you please <laughs> give me money? <laughs> and it doesn't, doesn't go that well. I think J.D. Vance is going to win. I think J.D. Vance is probably— No, my colleague Michael Brennan Doherty thinks he's going to win by like a Tom Cotton 17-point margin— I'm not seeing it. I, I suppose it could shake out that way. Uh, I've been wrong before, but I, I think it's probably going to be a, you know, mid single digit win for Vance. DeWin, DeWine will win handily. Um, and I think out of all of these, you know, quote unquote, celebrity candidates in the Republican Senate races, uh, he's probably the safest bet. Uh, you know, Oz really looks like a lost cause. Uh, Walker looks like a, um, I, I think he's going to be in until the end. And it's still going to be a jump ball. But in the end, I suspect he's going to spend a lot more time talking about the national championship at the University of Georgia than about any issues, uh, <laughs> issues like that. He'll be helped along by the fact that Georgia is Georgia and it's a good year for Republicans. Well, and he's also being helped along by the fact that apparently he has like 100,000 children. So hopefully they all live in Georgia and can vote for him. <laughs> um, my goodness. But how many of them are 18? How many of them? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows, Jim? Seems like that's something you should disclose to at least your campaign staff. By the way, right, hey, yeah, don't, I have don't a whole bunch of secret children. <laughs> like yeah. I've worked on a bunch of campaigns, and it's like, man, I just don't envy those guys. <laughs> They're like all staff meeting, it's like, okay, we're gonna have an issue. <laughs> we're gonna have an issue. Oh man. So I, in in Pennsylvania, maybe the only reason why Doctor Oz has any chance. I just I hope he stop. Just oh my goodness. Stop. He needs to stop trying so hard to, like, make up for the fact that he's this elitist living in New Jersey. You just saw the, the like, the the dove hunting picture or whatever he was doing. My goodness. I mean, like, I'm, I'm a hunter and angler, Jim. There's nothing worse than a politician that's never held a firearm holding a firearm. It's just, like, the most cringe-inducing nonsense ever. But the the only reason why the man has a chance is, but, is because John Fetterman is back on the campaign trail and it's ugly. And I, I'm not trying to kick a man when he's mm -hmm. down. I, I 
prayed for John Fetterman. I, look, for all of my faults, if I say I'm praying for somebody, I stop what I'm doing and, and pray right then for them. Um, and I did. I wish him nothing but the best. I hope he lives to 120. But it's it's bad. He made his second public appearance since having uh, his stroke, what, in late April, early May. Um and he, he can barely speak. He can barely communicate. He gets confused by even the simplest questions. He's clearly not all there uh, mentally. And, you know, I'm always frustrated with the Democrats' ability to rally their voters behind, like, anybody. Literally any anybody. Mm. Democrat X. It doesn't matter. You know, trying to get Republicans to vote for, for a, a lesser candidate maybe is like herding cats. You know what I mean? Because uh, Republicans do have a little bit of that. You know, rugged individualism, a little bit of that spirit of the founding fathers in them uh, occasionally. And Democrats don't. I mean, they're they're collectivists. So um, it shouldn't be surprising that they will just they will do as they're told. Um, but, you know, I think Sam Harris uh, summed it up best last week. And he said he was talking about how much he hates Trump. He just hates Trump so much. And he said he would have voted for Joe Biden. Uh, the quote was something along the lines of even if cops found piles of dead children in Hunter Biden's basement. Okay, and he got a lot of backlash for that, obviously. But I do think that is the mindset of a lot of Democratic voters at this point. I mean, they're so consumed by their hatred of Republicans, by their hatred of of Donald Trump. Um, They're so susceptible to to corporate media propaganda at this point that they're just going to get in line uh, and vote no matter what. And I'm glad Sam Harris said that out loud, as as awful, as wicked (laughs) as a statement like that is. I am glad uh, to, to see him put that out there. I mean, you saw, we, we all knew that, that Joe Biden—it's it, not like the, the 85 million or however many people voted for Joe Biden didn't know that he has late-stage Alzheimer's or dementia or wh- whatever. They know. They, they see the same things we do. You know, the, the Fetterman voters, I mean, they, 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 they see the man. He, he can barely speak English. You know, they, they understand it. So it's like I, I'm glad Sam said that out loud because I, I think— you know, we on the right need to know what we're up against. I mean, think, I think that collectivist mindset is going to be around for a long time. It's a very clarifying moment. And it kind of gives you, if you were the kind of person who listened to Sam Harris before, you probably, should, this, this should have a little bit of a red flag. You should basically recognize that Sam Harris has openly stated he can justify anything in the name of opposing Donald Trump. Now, are there times in life where you're going to find yourself with one priority that is so important and so overriding that you disregard all other considerations? Yeah, I suppose in rare times it can. Uh, Winston Churchill famously said that if Hitler had invaded hell, he would have found a way to say something nice about the devil. Um, You know, that there are circumstances where you do have to prioritize and you do have to stop whatever that thing is and all other considerations have to go by the wayside. But I think what, why we should not adopt the Sam Harris mentality whether it's stopping Biden, whether it's stopping Trump, you know, is that once you say the only thing I care about is stopping the opposition and I don't care about anything my guys have done, is that your guys will notice. And it's basically saying, as long as you're not the opposition, I will let you get away with anything. That's a terrible way to go through life. That's a ter- that is a guarantee to get bad government. Ideally, you should not want to replace a corrupt Democrat with a corrupt Republican or vice versa. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote, actually probably about a, less than a week ago, I wrote something about Hunter Biden. I was trying to say to, you know, I don't have a lot of left of center readers, but basically say, look, even if he didn't violate the law, which is still an open question, could we agree that we don't want the son of a vice president who eventually becomes a former vice president and eventually becomes a future president? 
Is it safe to say we don't want family members of the vice president getting into business with entities that are effectively controlled by the Chinese government and getting paid close to $5 million for work that nobody can really verify? Does it, shouldn't that bother us? Shouldn't that trouble us? And almost to, you know, the uniform response to that was, but Trump, but, but the Trump, Kushner, Ivanka in China and, uh, and the Saudis and, you know, and look, I, you know, the last person who's going to defend any of the, the Trump kids. I, again, I don't want children of presidents or vice presidents going into business with entities that are effectively controlled by foreign governments. Period. Don't care if it's Republicans. Don't care if it's Democrats. I think when you step into the presidency, you give up a certain amount of things that ordinary citizens can do. And getting into lucrative business dealings with foreign governments is one of them. And, you know, it was really deeply frustrating to see that. And I think we've got this mentality of like, look, the only thing that matters is beating the opposition. And I don't care about who my side nominates. Well, that's that's a formula that's going to cause you more headaches down the road. Eventually, you need to you need to. Now, this is why we have primaries. This is why I have these arguments in which we argue who the best person is. But the question was, I was trying to say, is there anybody who wanted to make a defense of Hunter Biden on the merits? And the answer was no. But in the end, to the you know at least to the audience that I was reaching, they did not care. As far as they, they the Chinese government could spend what could send whatever money it wanted to to Hunter Biden, they did not believe there was any significant conflict of interest there. And the most important thing was stopping Trump. And so I think this mentality is disturbingly widespread over there, which is a great way. It's a giant flashing neon sign that says to people, you can get away with anything as long as you're supporting the right causes. I mean, we saw this one, you know. Harvey Weinstein said he was going to go after the NRA and, you know, um, uh, Kevin Spacey chose to come out as gay when he was accused of sleeping with underage people. Yeah. All kinds of people will try to use ideology as a defense when they get caught with their, I'm going to say their hand in the cookie jar, but it's often very times much, much worse than that. And things that should be generating broad bipartisan denunciation, uh, they use ideology as a defense and sometimes it works. Not all the time, but sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely true. And I, I used to be a youth pastor for a while, Jim. So it, to running the risk of sounding like a youth pastor here, but it's like that that mentality is just an issue with like your own heart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. It's like a soul issue. It's not it's not a political issue. I mean, it's like you only get to that point if you're just consumed by hatred of other people. If you just hate like you can op oppose politicians as much as you want, but just if you just hate you know, Trump or hate a political party to the point where you're willing to just overlook atrocities or, you know, just horrible behavior. It's like that that's a you issue. You know what I mean? It has nothing to do with, you know, look, I'm a big fan of voting for the lesser of two evils. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, I'm a, often it's what you have to do. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm a, I'm a radical libertarian who's a registered Republican in Ohio. You know, I, I, I voted for mm -hmm. Rob Portman multiple times. I'm going to vote for JD Vance. I'm going to vote for Mike DeWine, a guy who locked me in my house at gunpoint. Okay? You, a horrible governor. Terrible. Just a, a horrific just joke of a Republican. I'm still voting for him because he's running against a madman. I mean, my goodness, because my life would be made much, much worse if he loses. So I'm, I'm voting for a candidate who I despise. You know, like, it's not about voting for the lesser of two evils. I don't think there's any problem with that. But it's like, man, if you are just so consumed by just malice, just hatred... Of, of either a man like Trump or just a party or, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's because you hate your neighbors. 
It's because you hate you just you just hate Republicans, and it's like, you know, I, I certainly hope that the right doesn't become like that in a reactionary fashion, which of course they will, because all politics is reactionary. So unfortunately, I think that's where we're heading. But yeah, man, it's just a it's a personal morality issue more than it is a political one. But um, yeah, we, yeah. we actually we obviously have to talk about what the Biden administration is doing today. And obviously uh, it, it's probably happening as we're recording. Cause that's how you get news to break is you just start recording an episode <laughs> of the no gimmicks podcast. And just like the whole world just falls apart when I'm recording. But uh, uh, apparently at some point today, Biden is going to announce that he's canceling um, some student loan debt by executive order. Um, obviously that's wildly illegal. Uh, the president has no authority to do that. He's essentially declaring himself dictator and just uh, daring congress or the courts or whoever to do something about it um obviously there's no rule of law in this country anymore um and we're all just pretending to be fine with that for some reason but aside from the fact that it's blatantly unconstitutional it'll cost taxpayers anywhere between 300 billion and, and 980 billion dollars which obviously in reality means a trillion trillion and a half something like that over the next 10 years in the middle of the worst inflationary recession in 40 years when the government is over is in over uh, 31 trillion dollars of debt all to try to bribe young upper middle class elites who already vote Democrat to vote Democrat even harder, apparently. So absolutely shameful, shameful stuff from the president. Yeah. Uh, and what's intriguing is oftentimes you can look at the, you know, Biden or, or de congressional Democrats or somebody making a decision that ignores the Constitution or. Uh, doesn't make financial sense, or in this case, will exacerbate inflation, basically amounts to dumping more money into the economy just in a different format. And you can say, well, okay, but you can see how this will help them in the polls. So this is going to be popular, so it's going to work. This is not going to be popular, or at least it's not going to be popular amongst the broader electorate. There yeah. are certain people it's going to be extremely popular with. Some of those people work in the White House. There are White House staffers who still have significant student loans to repay. And I, I kind of asked the question yesterday, how many people around Biden, one, personally benefit from it, but also like, how many people around Biden get that this is a good idea and think it's a good idea because not only would they benefit or maybe they know, maybe their spouse would, maybe their siblings, friends, they, they know people who owe a lot of student debt and say, ah, oh, well, I, I owe a lot of debt. I got an education. God knows whether they got their money worth out of that education. And I don't want to pay back this money, so I should have the government do it for me. You know, I should make the taxpayers pay, even though I got the benefits and I signed a contract saying I would pay back this money. Oh, oh by the way, also, nobody's had to pay this since the COVID-19 pandemic, which was not exactly, you know, uh, yesterday. Right? They've had, you know, no uh, payments for the better part of two years now. And apparently nobody's had any ability to pay back the principal. Nobody's been able to get up ahead of this, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um and I wonder, you know, the White House staffers, the kind of people Biden consults with, how many of them see this the way a plumber who has to pay for his neighbor's student loan would feel about this? Right? Right. They, they, I, I don't think they do. The only exception might be Larry Summers, who, by the way, earlier this year was trying to warn or at the beginning of 2021 was trying to warn Democrats that the uh, American Recovery Act, the American Relief Act was going to exacerbate inflation. They didn't listen to him then either. He's making the same warning now. And I think it's kind of just it, it's a bizarrely self-destructive move. And it kind of indicates that I think Ron Klain and all the folks around President Biden, they spent a lot of time listening to the Twitter left, the folks who are, are connected to them. They don't know how it's going to play in a place like Ohio. They don't know how it's going to play in that, you know, the Rust Belt, upper Midwest, 
uh, Colorado, you know, all of these these states where um, people, the, the number of people who are going to benefit this, you know, in terms of sheer numbers is fairly small. And the cost of the country is going to be pretty bad. But also this happens in an administration where Biden has been telling us for months that his top priority is fighting inflation. Now, <laughs> somehow he managed to Jedi mind trick people. He's, you know, like, so the inflation in last month was not quite as bad as it was the month before. And somehow Biden looks at it and says, zero percent. He managed to, you know, he, he tell him, well, inflation's gone. Inflation is solved. And I just ask you, like, go to your grocery store. Do you feel like inflation is solved? I, I wrote something earlier today pointing out that, um, yes, it is good that gas prices are not as high as they were in uh, mid-June. They, they are down about a dollar and change from when they reached their all-time high in mid-June. So I filled up yesterday at $3.99 a gallon here in Northern Virginia. That's better, but that's not good. That, that certainly is. You know, we're used to paying around to between two dollars and three dollars a gallon. And I went back and I checked, and in late August, between two dollars and three dollars a gallon is the normal range. I'm now paying close, just under four. That's not good news. That's not. Yeah. You know, that's a mild improvement from the disaster that was midsummer. And then get get Democrats are walking around saying the issue of gas prices is solved. They are whistling past the graveyard on this, and just a, a stunning level of of you know denial. I suspect. Yeah. And I, I remember when I was in grade school back in the 90s, um, I remember my teacher, I don't remember who it was, but I remember a teacher explaining to the class, you know, the the basics of, I, I must have been real young because it was like just the basics of American government and politics. Um, and, and this teacher was was explaining that Republicans are generally uh, more wealthy, uh, more suburban, and, and Democrats are generally lower to middle class. And that may have been true then in the 90s, at least maybe in Ohio. Mm. Um, but that's completely switched. I mean, that's completely. I mean, the Democrats are are the party of the rich, coastal elites. Um, they they're literally robbing truck drivers and plumbers and giving it to gender studies majors. I mean, they they think this will help them win elections. I I don't think that's the case. Um, it, the working class is firmly in the GOP camp at this point, and and I don't. This is not going to help them among minorities, uh, specifically Hispanics who are fleeing the Democratic Party in, in record numbers. And this is we, you and I. Anytime we do a podcast, we always go on a, a random tangent, and this is mine for the day. I, I hate that that's where my brain went. And you and I, I'm calling you and I both out because we're we're both we are two of the worst offenders on this topic. We take. <laughs> I because my brain went to like this is actually going to hurt Democrats so that's good <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean and I, I spent yeah. a lot of time on this podcast like look at this horrible thing the Democrats are doing to us <laughs> doing to the country they just destroyed blank well at least it's going to hurt them in November you know and I I, just, I talk like that a lot and and you know on your podcast Three Martini Lunch which I highly recommend if anybody hasn't checked it out go go subscribe right now but you do good bad and crazy topics every day and. Half the time, your your good topic is just like the Democrats did something awful, but it's going to hurt them electorally. And I, so my random therapeutic uh, uh, tantrum for the day is like, I hate how that's where my brain goes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like that's none of this is good news. Ground beef is seven bucks a pound. You know, like it's hurting me. Like these policies yeah. are hurting me more than it's hurting Joe Biden. You know, and, and Democratic politicians who are all wealthy. So it's like that. That's my that's my side note of the day. Like I hate that my own brain classifies things in terms of like the electoral outcomes. Well, I, you know, my co-host Greg Columbus and I often chew this over before we start taping when we're trying to decide what topics to talk about. And we'll say, well, this is bad news. And generally we try to put ourselves in a situation where we're never rooting against the country. Right, right. When the unemployment number goes down, 
that's good news. When the uh, inflation rate goes up, that is bad news for us. You know, those circumstances that are likely to result in Republican wins in the midterms and, you know, eventually lead to more conservative policies. Yeah. You know, but it's kind of that, you know, long term bouncing ricochet effect of, uh, right. uh, of, of all that sort of thing. And I, I'd rather be in a country that was in better shape uh, than it is right now. I'd rather be in a country that had a, let's say, center left Democratic Party and a good, solid conservative Republican Party so that policies genuinely stayed in that center right. There are times when I think Republicans go too far. There are times where there is such a thing as too conservative for me. You got to go a long while, but it exists. And so, yeah, I I don't necessarily like the idea of getting into this, you know, quasi socialist communist, the worse, the better, you know, right. um, The worse things get, then the proletariat, because like life teaches us, um, sometimes the people, the proletariat, the people do not rise up the way you think they should, and they do oh, not elect the people no. you think. You know. So, you know, it, it, you can't always count on public outrage turning out the way uh, you, you're expecting them to. You, you are completely correct on that. On the other hand, I, I, I do believe that people are teachable. I do believe that people right. do learn from experience. The problem is we keep getting new young people who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> who right. enter the electorate <laughs> and who have to learn the same lessons the hard way through through experience. But I, I do believe that people generally, you know, there's a reason people generally get more conservative as they get older. Some of it is this thing like they have kids and all of a sudden they start thinking about, oh, all of a sudden that issue of schools that didn't matter, well, now it matters to me a lot, right? Um, they end up, you know, all of a sudden when you, you get a job, a decent job, maybe they have a, a 401k or matching program, all of a sudden you care about how the economy is doing in the market. All of a sudden you care about uh, the long-term finances. All of a sudden, you stop seeing the government as this thing that's supposed to take care of you, or at least generally. I'm, I'm you know, um, and so my my attitude is that people can learn and do learn, and that eventually they figure out, oh, if everybody from blue states is fleeing them and saying they can't afford to live there anymore, and the crime is too high, and nothing works the way it used to, and all that stuff, and they where are they moving to? If they're all moving to Florida, if they're all moving to Texas, they're all moving to these red states. What does that tell you? Your people are voting with their feet. You know, so sometimes people learn and you know, sometimes it does feel a little like Sisyphus. We keep rolling that rock up that hill. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see uh, Gavin Newsom's TV ads in Florida calling California a, a bastion of freedom and liberty. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I think, I think the voters are smart enough to see through yeah. that. One, one more thing that we can end here, though, just going back to this uh, executive order that's apparently going to be rolled out today. I don't know how, and obviously I'm a, I'm a little bit more, you know, nihilistic or pessimistic about just the, the, the future of the republic than you are, I'd say. But it's like, man, when you see presidents just blatantly violating the law like this, and every president does it. I mean, with, with Trump, it was the, 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 the worst one was the bump stock ban. Um, I think he should have been impeached by that. I mean, you know, you turn tens of thousands of Americans into felons with the, with the stroke of a pen, I think you should probably go to prison uh, for doing something like that. But, um, you know, I, I just don't know how we're going to come back from this, man. It's like this is because this is a big one. I mean, he's just via executive order spending a trillion dollars uh, for giving all these debts. I mean, it's like I, I don't know how I don't know how we claw our way back to some semblance of constitutionality. Um, you know, I don't know, it's especially because American politics is so reactionary. You know, the next Republican president, well, the Democrat did it. And, you know, I can do this, you know. So it's like, I, I just don't know how we, I, it, this is not good. I mean, this is a, this is, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we're, you know, the, the talking heads, even on the right, even on, you know, far right, libertarian right, we're going to be talking about inflation, talking about how 
just pouring all this money into the economy is going to you know destroy so do do all this damage and that's all true but it's like the biggest problem is like uh, there is no rule of law <laughs> i mean we have a president who is essentially declaring himself emperor so I'm not going to try to blow sunshine up a certain orifice. I'm not going to try to be, you know, uh, Bobby McFerrin telling you to don't worry, be happy. I will note, it was a good quote in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend. It was an interview and he basically said, like, reading history is a like a process of assuring you that what you're living through isn't as unprecedented as you think it is. And, you know, yes, it is really bad to see. Uh, at least one and probably one and a half, you know, some might argue two parties that really don't like, they see the constitution as this minor inconvenience that they can ignore if it becomes enough of a hassle. But if you think back to say the late sixties, early seventies, I was actually, so I was born in 75, you know, dating myself on this podcast. And at one point, actually, I realized I was reading about, you know, accounts of the seventies. I started asking my parents, like, what was it like to be in a gas line? You know, and to know that depending on your license plate, you can only buy gas on even numbered days or odd numbered days. And, you know, um, trying to lock up your car because people would siphon the gas out of your car because things were so desperate. The domestic terrorism of the 60s and 70s and bombs going off in U.S. cities used to be a fairly regular uh, occurrence back in the days of not just the Black Panthers, but, uh, you know, Bill Ayers and the Weathermen and yeah. Underground and all these kinds of groups and stuff like that. Um, I mean, we've had really rough times in living memory in this country. You know, you have to go back to the uh, Great Depression and things like that. Um, I mean, just imagine being an American, and some of your listeners maybe are old enough to remember this, hearing about the abduction of Patty Hearst, right, this heiress, this, you know, America's sweetheart. And all of a sudden she shows up as a bank robber holding a machine gun, and she's been brainwashed by this psychopath, right? I mean, people must have thought it was the apocalypse. People must have thought that the world was about to spin off its axis. So yeah. the more you look at like, you know, okay, are, are, have we been through these particular precise set of circumstances that are really bad? No, no, life is always changing in some new way. But this country has been through really rough periods before, and we've figured out a way to not just endure, but generally bounce back and climb out of that hole. So I think we can do it. It requires making the right choices, and that's why what we're doing these days has consequence and has meaning, or at least what I tell myself when it looks like, you know, the, the apocalypse is approaching Brady. Right. <laughs> right. See that, that's the thing, uh, with, with my political philosophy, being a libertarian, I always want the conservatives to be right. And I always want to be wrong because <laughs> when the conservatives are right and I'm wrong, that means things are getting better. Things are going well, things are operating properly. Um, but it's just, unfortunately, I've been right a lot. And especially since the beginning of the, the COVID stuff, I've been correct a lot more than I ever would want to be. Um, if I, if I go over a hundred on my predictions on the podcast for a year, that is just exactly where, that's where I want the country to be, brother. <laughs> that means things are going well. So before I let you go, Jim, uh, one more time, all the plugs, Twitter, the morning jolt, uh, gathering five storms, uh, three martini lunch. Where can everybody find it? Sure. Um, well, first and foremost in my mind these days, Gathering Five Storms, available at Amazon. I should also note that for people who look at this thriller series and are like, eh, I don't know if I want it. I wrote a short story called Saving the Devil. It kind of is this bridge story between uh, the second and third book. It's just 99 cents. Easy way to see if this is your kind of thing. Uh, once again, available at Amazon, easily downloadable to your Kindle and by the way, if you don't have a Kindle, the Kindle app is downloadable on every you know phone and uh, tablet and anything else you have. 
Um, over at National Review, the Morning Jolt newsletter is run Monday through Friday. Uh, try to get it out into your mailboxes by eh, 10-ish, you know, if I'm lucky. I send it pretty early. It doesn't always get out that early. And I write in the corner over there uh, on Twitter. I am at Jim Garrity, J-I-M-G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. Be forewarned, in the next couple of months, it's going to have a lot of complaining about the New York Jets. <laughs> and uh, also, the Three Martini Lunch is available at Ricochet and down where, pound, where uh, podcasts are downloaded everywhere. Co-hosted with Greg Columbus. We usually pick three topics a day. Uh, fast, funny, and uh, you know, hopefully, we give you hopefully give a little bit of a spring in your step as you walk through the afternoon. Absolutely, everybody, order uh, Gathering Five Storms right now. You cheap skates, and everybody, follow Jim. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. <laughs> Thank you.